We talk a lot on this podcast about books and movies and things we've seen on a screen that exhibit leadership qualities. I mean, we did a whole episode about Moneyball. I did a monologue about an episode of the Mary Tyler Moore Show, and I've wanted to do an entire episode based around the film Master and Commander, which has some excellent leadership moments. But we haven't talked on this podcast about what, for my money, is pound for pound the best example of leadership ever put on screen. We've discussed recording an episode on it many times. We even scheduled a recording session with a fire chief who loves it that had to be canceled at the last minute. And believe me, I know it doesn't look like it's a show about leadership on the outside. It looks like a sitcom about sports. And I'm not really a sports guy, so I didn't really want to watch it. If you're in that thanks I'm not interested group, I get it. Hatch was the one who told me I had to give it a chance, and I'm really glad I did. I'm talking, of course, about Ted Lasso. This show about an American football coach moving to England and coaching a Premier League soccer team is at times funny, heartfelt, inspirational, and sometimes devastatingly sad. But it's the leadership that the main character Ted Lasso exhibits, as well as many of the other characters, that's the reason I want to talk about it now. If you haven't seen it yet, I'm going to be revealing some stuff about the show as I talk. Not really spoilers, but definitely plot points. I don't think they're spoilers because I've watched the entire series three times and knowing what's going to happen doesn't spoil any of the impact of this show for me. It's that good. The first time I watched it, I was only five minutes into the first episode when I got hooked on Ted Lasso's leadership perspective. He's on a plane flying to London with an assistant coach and friend who he asks, are we nuts for doing this? Referring to them moving to another country to coach a professional team in a sport that they have no experience with. As a matter of fact, when Ted asks if they're nuts for doing this, his assistant coach, Coach Beard, is trying to learn the sport by reading two books on soccer. So Beard answers Ted's question with a sarcastic, yeah, this is nuts. To which Ted says, hey, but taking on a challenge is a little like riding a horse, isn't it? If you're comfortable while you're doing it, you're probably doing it wrong. Now, we've talked on this podcast quite a bit about the benefits of being uncomfortable, how growth only comes when you or someone else moves you out of your comfort zone. And while Ted Lasso's version of making himself uncomfortable is maybe an extreme one, he's absolutely right about it. If you're comfortable doing whatever it is you're doing, you're probably doing it wrong. If you've gotten comfortable in your position, are you really continuing to grow in it? If you've gotten comfortable with the people you've surrounded yourself with, are they challenging you the way you need to be challenged? You don't necessarily need to move to London like Ted and Beard, but you need to constantly be looking for ways to make yourself uncomfortable so that you're forced to learn. Shane and I used to say it all the time, and we meant it. We'd say, is today the day they figure out we don't know what the hell we're doing? We meant it because we had a habit of pushing ourselves into unfamiliar territory where we didn't have all the answers. If you think you've got a good handle on whatever it is you're doing, whether that's advancing a nozzle, forcing a door, driving the truck, running a station, running a battalion, or even running a division, if you're comfortable doing it, maybe it's time to look for something new. 
And I know what it's like when it's good, when you've got a really good group of people you're working with. You don't want to let that go. You feel powerful and at the apex of your abilities. It's hard to go against that feeling. To choose to leave that and move towards something that is unfamiliar and difficult, that takes a leap of faith that you'll land on your feet. But go ahead and get used to the idea that it probably won't be a soft landing. You're going to get bruised along the way. Case in point, when they arrive in England, Ted and Beard's first day with the team isn't exactly a great one. Ted is immediately thrown to the wolves to do a press conference with an incredibly hostile press corps and then meets his team in the locker room who, as you may have guessed, are also pretty damn hostile to him. I don't know about you, but I could feel in my bones how hard that must have been for Ted. And it's not just the press and his team. The whole stadium chants wanker at him when he takes the field, his home field. I can feel it in my bones thinking back on all of the times I put myself out there and took a beating for a while. A couple of episodes later, Ted drives home another powerful leadership principle, the principle of the first follower. In that episode, the team's kit man, Nate, the guy that takes care of the locker room and the jerseys and the rest of the stuff, well, Nate is getting constantly picked on by a few of the players. The team captain, Roy Kent, has had enough of it and reports it to Ted. Ted not only surprises Roy by telling him he's aware that Nate's being harassed, he also tells Roy he's not going to do anything about it. Roy, whose superpower is rage, is furious. He goes back to the locker room and stews. Beard and Ted watch Roy through the office window glass, and Beard asks, why are you winding him up? To which Ted says, he's the one, coach. If we're going to make an impact here, the first domino that needs to fall is in that man's heart. In the words of the ever-profane Roy Kent, fuck, Ted nailed it. Now, if you don't know what a first follower is, Google the three-minute video, First Follower, Leadership Lessons from Dancing Guy. That short video of a really stoned guy dancing at a music festival and the effect he has on the rest of the crowd sums up everything you need to know about the concept of a first follower. There are real limits on the influence that you have as a leader. Limits on your time, limits on your reach, limits on your abilities. You can't do it alone, and it wouldn't be as successful even if you could. When you're in a somewhat hostile situation like Ted and Beard, you need to get someone in the group to pick up your flag. You need a first follower. And that's what Ted sees in Roy Kent. Roy's the team captain. He's a senior member of the squad, respected, and with a history in the league. If anyone is going to help turn the team toward where Ted is trying to take them, he knows it's Roy even if Roy doesn't realize it when Ted winds him up. And Ted just wants Roy to do what Roy already knows is the right thing to do. Ted's willing to let Roy direct his anger toward him for a bit if it gets Roy to really become a team captain and let the others on the team know what will and won't be allowed. Namely, no more bullying. Ted really frustrates Roy when he says he's not going to do anything about the bullying, but it sets Roy in motion and Ted knows Roy will get results. There's a great definition of leadership in Heifetz and Linsky's book, Leadership on the Line. They offer a few different definitions throughout the book, 
But at one point they say, leadership is disappointing your followers at a rate they can absorb. Now, that might hit you wrong the first time you hear it, but think about it. Leadership isn't getting people to do the things they already want to do. As they say, you're not a leader if you just get in front of a parade that's already heading down the street. That's not leading. If you're going to lead the parade, you have to get it to turn a different direction from where it was headed before you got in front. And if you're doing that, you're introducing change, which will inevitably disappoint. That's what Heifetz and Linsky meant. That's leadership. It's the leader's job to read the room and introduce the maximum possible change in direction that the group can tolerate. In that moment with Roy, Ted is doing what Heifetz and Linsky call turning up the temperature. Ted is purposefully creating tension to get people to move in the direction he wants them to move. In the end, Roy realizes if anybody is going to do anything about the bullying in the locker room, it's going to have to be him. A few threats and a headbutt later, Roy has the bullying addressed. And by the end of the episode, Ted has Roy as a first follower. What I think is the epitome of all the leadership moments in the entire series involves Jamie Tart, who in the first season is the star athlete on the team, but who's also pretty toxic to everyone around him. Jamie got traded to another club, and Ted's team was pretty damn happy about that. But in the second season, Jamie approaches Ted, asking if he can come back. Over a beer, Ted tells Jamie that he doesn't think it's a good idea. But since they were seen talking at the pub, a rumor gets out that Ted is letting Jamie come back. The rest of the team assumes the worst, and a few of them take their complaints to Ted, who then assures them that Jamie is not coming back to the team. But in the final moments of that episode, to the pounding beat of the ridiculously appropriate song Tear It Up by Queen, Jamie takes the field during practice to the astonishment of everyone, including Ted's best friend Beard, who we can see from Beard's expression wasn't even told. Ted and Jamie Tart are the only ones who aren't shocked. And in that moment, there are plenty of dirty looks aimed toward Jamie and looks of betrayal directed at Ted. But what Ted knows is that the team needs Jamie if they're going to succeed, and that Jamie needs this team if he's ever going to grow into the best version of himself. It's definitely not where this parade wants to go, but Ted is out front moving them in the direction that they need. And I don't want to ruin more of the show than I have to to get my point across, but Ted is absolutely right about bringing Jamie back. The team and Jamie are better together. That decision to bring Jamie back when no one else wanted him there is the closest Ted comes in the whole series to losing his followers. Ted turned up the temperature on the team, and he knew just how much they could tolerate. It's masterful. And sure, you might say it only worked because the writers wrote it that way. Anything's possible because it's a fictional story. But this series is a lot of things other than just a bunch of happy endings. It's not that easy. As a matter of fact, there's a devastating scene in the first season between Ted and the owner of the team. It involves accountability, intent, and forgiveness, which I believe are at the heart of leadership. 
the owner of the team, Rebecca, comes to Ted and confesses that she's been working against Ted's and the team's success. The viewer has seen it all along as she methodically plotted, but in this moment, Ted finally sees the truth of it as Rebecca comes clean to him. She'd gone through a bad divorce, got the team as part of the settlement, and has been sabotaging every one of Ted's decisions in order to ruin the team just to get revenge against her ex. Even her hiring of Ted was part of that plan. Rebecca is in tears as she confesses to Ted, detailing everything she's done. She's truly sorry she hurt Ted and the team, who she refers to in that moment as, all you good people. And to a viewer like me, her behavior could easily amount to something that's pretty much unforgivable. Ted is shocked and hurt. He left his family in America. He's taken a beating in the British press, and he's had numerous losses on the field and suffered quite a few embarrassments along the way. But he quickly says to Rebecca, I forgive you. And when Rebecca asks him why, Ted adds, Divorce is hard. It doesn't matter if you're the one leaving or the one who got left. Makes folks do crazy things. Now, I tell people I don't cry, that instead I get the eye sweats. Well, right there, I get the eye sweats bad. It's a very human moment. It's a moment of grace. And it's a tremendous moment of leadership. You see, there are three core leadership things happening there. Accountability, forgiveness, and intent. Rebecca is holding herself accountable by confessing and apologizing. She admits what she did, says she's sorry, and you can tell she means it. I don't think Ted could have made her feel any worse in that moment. He recognizes that, so he doesn't feel the need to pile on. She's holding herself accountable to him. That's enough. And accountability is a central concept to the series. At some point, I realized just how often characters were offering apologies, so I went back to the beginning and counted the number of apologies in the first season. And here's the data. The first season of Ted Lasso averages an apology every six minutes. And apologies equal accountability. So Ted Lasso is very much a show about accountability. But it's also a show about what happens after the apology. It's a show about forgiveness. Patrick Lencioni in his book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, said, Trust is forgiveness. We've talked about it here before. Why would someone ever trust you if they don't believe you'll forgive them when they make a mistake? And if you don't have trust, how do you ever expect to lead? So your ability to forgive is central to your ability to lead. Ted, in forgiving Rebecca for these horrible offenses, is building trust. He's being a leader in a moment where most of us might be challenged to be half as generous. There's a lot in this series about forgiveness, both people asking for forgiveness and people accepting apologies. How many of us hold on to past offenses? Firefighters have long memories. Ted advocates for the opposite. He says, be like a goldfish, because a goldfish only has a six-second memory. Forgiveness is the key to trust, and you can't be a leader without trust. 
the last leadership piece on display in this scene is intent. There's a Calvin and Hobbes comic strip about intent that I love. In the first panel, Calvin is hammering a nail into a coffee table covered in nails. There are like eight nails in it already. In the second panel, his mom is running into the room screaming, Calvin, what are you doing to the coffee table? The third panel has Calvin, hammer in hand, staring down at the nails and thinking about his mother's question. And in the last panel, Calvin asks his mother, is this some sort of trick question or what? As a parent, I've been where Calvin's mother is. You see your kid doing something and you're thinking to yourself, that kid is doing that just to drive me crazy. But in reality, just like Calvin, they really weren't thinking about you at all. Calvin was just driving nails. He wasn't trying to make his mother angry. When she runs into the room angry, he's perplexed. His only intent was to drive nails, not make his mom mad. His mother is assigning intent to Calvin that never existed. Now, I'm as guilty as anyone at filling in the blanks on other people's intent, and I usually assume the worst of someone. But Ted, in this moment, when Rebecca apologizes, recognizes that she was simply trying to hurt the person who hurt her, her ex-husband. She ended up hurting Ted and many others, but it wasn't her intent to hurt them. Should she have known better? Absolutely. But as Ted said, divorce is hard and it makes you do crazy things. Recognizing intent and recognizing where you're assigning intent where it doesn't exist is a huge step in developing your leadership. We talked about it in our last episode on Diphos. I don't think anyone shows up to a fire or an emergency scene with the intent of screwing it up. But how many of us have spoken bad about someone on scene for doing a crap job as though that was the sole purpose in their life? When we make mistakes, we didn't mean to. It's the nature of a mistake. We intended some other result, but got one we maybe didn't expect, or at least hoped we wouldn't get. Too often we project what we want to see in other people. We don't see them as they really are. We believe something about them or about a situation, and we judge them through that prism. That prism distorts who they really are so that we can validate what we thought about them before they made the mistake. Ted could have seen Rebecca in that moment through a prism that made him attribute all of her acts as designed to hurt him. Because they have hurt him, and when you're hurt, you react to that thing that's hurting you. But Ted is a leader in the truest sense. We should all try to recognize the true intent of the other person, not the intent you want them to have. Well, by now you've heard me talk a good bit about Ted Lasso, and I could go on and on. I've described some of the scenes I think are terrific examples of this show's many, many leadership lessons. But I've done a poor job compared to watching the real thing. If you haven't seen Ted Lasso, give it a shot. I haven't found a single person who's watched it that didn't think it was terrific. And if you've watched it, watch it again. Watch it as a student of leadership. There's so much more there to learn from than I've detailed here. That show is a perfect reminder of how great leadership can be and why each of us 
who've been lucky enough to have people willing to follow us into a burning building or even just follow us to the grocery store to buy dinner, why each of us, lucky enough to have people follow us and trust us, need to give them the absolute best of ourselves. Be like Ted. Challenge them by guiding them to be uncomfortable so that they can grow. Don't always do the heavy lifting for them. Rely on a first follower or two. Do what's best for them, even when they don't necessarily see the wisdom at that moment. Be accountable to others by apologizing when you're wrong and forgive others when they're wrong so you can get back to trusting one another. And don't assign intent where it never existed. And if all else fails, ask yourself, what would Ted do? Combustible is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Amazon, and everywhere else you listen to podcasts. Subscribe to Combustible to make sure you don't miss out on an episode. Follow us on Facebook so we know how many of you listeners there are out there. And you can check us out online at combustiblethepodcast.com. As always, we would like to thank the Golden Dogs and True North Records for letting us use their song Saints at the Gates for our theme music. You can find the Golden Dogs music on any streaming platform. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you later. Later.